Hello and welcome to the Phil Hay Show. This is our weekly remote get-together these days where we sit down and talk about all things Leeds United. I'm Dan Moylan. With me from The Athletic, it's Phil Hay. Hello, everybody. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. And Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. So due to the coronavirus crisis, The Athletic have turned over the sponsorship slot for the podcast to somebody who needs a little bit of a leg up at the moment. And it's more than one person, actually, who needs assistance at the minute. It's lots. So if you can spare a couple of quid, we're asking you to donate money to the Leeds Fans Food Bank. Obviously, we can't venture out at the minute to donate physical goods, but they do have a page where you can donate a little bit of cash. And it's really going to help people who are struggling at the minute. And you can make a difference from the comfort of your socially distanced armchair. Head to thesquareball.net forward slash food bank. And we've set up a redirect there that will take you through to the page so you can donate a couple of quid. And for more great Leeds content, make sure you do subscribe to The Athletic, where you can find all Phil's stuff, ad-free podcasts as a subscriber by listening through The Athletic app. And you can get a 40% discount on a subscription by heading to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. And very much enjoying The Athletic's 98-99 reboot of that season in real time. Phil, what else is going on there? There's been quite a lot happening with us. Um, like you say, we're, we're approaching the part of the 98-99 season that we um, that we don't want to talk about. And like Michael said a few weeks ago, um, nobody cares about the trophies that were that were won anyway. But we've, um, we're looking at top three Leeds United goals at the moment. Number one still to come at some point next week. We've got uh, a big piece on the, the Galatasaray, uh, the events in Galatasaray 20 years ago um, coming up the back end of this week as well. Um, and a, a good look today at the, uh, the ins and outs of how things have improved under BL, so the way Leeds have actually got better as a team despite being excellent and, and pretty thrilling uh, under him last season they, they have improved over the last 12 months uh, and improved right up to the point where the coronavirus is, is in their way um, so yeah plenty to, to look at on there So the wage deferral that Leeds United players have taken so that the rest of the staff can get paid that was in the process of being agreed the last time that we spoke on last week's podcast it's since been confirmed so do you have any more details for us? Yeah, when, when we spoke last week, they were at the point of, of agreeing the deferral officially. They'd, they'd had a meeting, the senior players, with um, Angus Kinnear and Victor Orta on the Tuesday morning. Um, and the club had got to the point where they'd realised that, or, or were of the opinion, that, that a deferral was going to be necessary to keep the finances at, um, at Ellen Road right and, and to see them through a period when there was no match day income. And you know they, they pull in in the region of £600,000-£700,000 from a home game between gate receipts and merchandising and the usual usual cash that comes in from from a, a typical home game. So it is a, a fairly sizable shortfall and the players realised that and they were sympathetic to the fact that it had to be done. It's quite interesting because they, they've agreed a, an upper limit, a, a ceiling of £6,000 a week, so nobody is earning more than that and clearly players and staff who are on less than that will continue to be to be paid in full and it applies to the players it applies to Bielsa and, and his coaching staff and also senior management at, at Ellen Road so people like Kinnear and, and Arthur themselves and it's open-ended so there's no official end date for this and um, there's no contract for it either the, the players all agreed to it via email they were all contacted individually by Angus Kinnear and, and gave their consent to it but it is essentially there and, and in place for as long as Leeds feel like they need it. The money is very much promised to be returned to them. It's um, it's a guarantee that they will be paid in full with interest when when this is all done. Um, but it does mean that in the meantime, they're able to pay the regular staff, um, of which they're around about 200 at Leeds. So it is significant in, in that sense. And it, I think you'll see an awful lot of clubs follow um, in the weeks to come. I, I think an awful lot are going to be forced into the same position where they feel that in order to, to see out the next few months or however long that the shutdown goes on for, they're going to need to save money. Leeds United sitting in stark contrast to 
what you've seen from some of the Premier League clubs. You see the news reports today about Spurs. They haven't come out of this looking particularly good, have they? No, although I can't tell whether or not that's a bit of gamesmanship on, on Daniel Levy's part and whether or not he's using that to try and bump the players into into agreeing a pay deferral. They will be under a lot of pressure to do that. And um, I noticed today that, that Bournemouth have, have taken cuts. Eddie Howe and, and others down there have, have agreed to, to defer some of their wages. And, and this is going to spread. And I think that was part of the issue at Ellen Road as well. They, they kind of felt that if there were to be cuts and if there, there were to be staff who went without cash or if things were to get tight further down the line and, and different decisions had to be made, it, it needed to be seen that the players were involved in this. It, it wouldn't have looked good to anybody had the players continued to be paid in full while cuts were, were being made elsewhere, regardless of the fact that they are you know, all tied down by pretty watertight contracts. So you're right. I mean, it is still to develop properly elsewhere and, and there's still to be a firm decision made in, in the Premier League. And I think certainly the, the EFL at the outset, and I would imagine the Premier League at the same we're hoping that there might be some kind of blanket decision um, or some blanket structure to this that apply to everybody. But clearly clubs are starting to go out on their own um, in order to do this. I know that Brentford have been talking very seriously about it and I've seen a couple of reports this evening that they're at the point where, where they've agreed as well a, a deferral with their players. So it is happening, it, it needs to happen and it will need to happen in an awful lot more clubs than, than just Leeds. We are recording on the day of the UEFA meeting, high-level meeting, where they're trying to decide what to do with the season. So have you got an update from that? Yeah, so they've they suspended what were going to be all international fixtures for June. Um, I think they're of the opinion that it's it's now impossible that, that any games are going to be played before then, certainly in public. And are looking now at ways in which to rearrange the Champions League, the, the Europa League. I think it comes back to the same problem that we're having with the EFL and the Premier League, which is that nobody, and, and it also supplies the Football Association, nobody is really able at this stage to, to put a, a definite finger on when we might be able to start up again or if we'll be able to start up again in a way that, that can finish this season. And until we reach that point, and I think until things settle, settle down in, in general society and, and move back to normal a little bit more as well, it's going to be very difficult for any definitive decision to be taken on this. I mean, a lot of reports over the weekend of the Premier League discussing the possibility of cramming the remaining games into a short period of time, having players in hotels, playing behind closed doors, essentially making it as safe with as much social distancing as possible to to let the games continue and and to let the season finish. But that's going to be extremely hard while society in general is is on lockdown. And I think people do realise that. And and they are very much in, in a state of limbo. And aside from the Football Association deciding to void um, every league from level three down, so every division below, Conference North and South. We are still waiting for proper guidance on this and I don't think the governing bodies are in a position yet where they can really give us any. And of course, there's a bigger issue at play at the minute, but boredom is one of the major issues for many during this lockdown whilst we deal with coronavirus. I mean, how are you finding it and what about the players? The players are still at home. They, they've been at home now for the best part of three weeks. Um, and as it as it stands at the moment, there's no agreed date for them to return to Thorpe Arch. And, and I don't think they will return to Thorpe Arch until the government eased the, the restrictions and, and the lockdown rules. Because again, it, it beyond even health matters, it, it comes down to setting a bit of an example. And it doesn't look great if football is trying to plough on while the rest of the country are struggling to do anything and, and are kind of restricted from from going out of their houses. So they are still at home with their equipment. Um, some of them are turning up to Thorpe Arch through running sessions. Um, Thorpe Arch is open to people who need rehab, like Adam Forshaw, and you do have Rob Price, the head of medical, and others there day-to-day because there, there needs to be some outlet for players who are injured or, or need medical advice. 
in terms of me, it's a, a case of finding articles to write that don't relate to the season, uh, articles you can write that don't require live football. Um, and in terms of home life, it's a case of getting your head around homeschooling an eight-year-old and a four-year-old, which has convinced me slowly over time that teachers should be paid a fortune. You've lost all of your, uh, your athletic-funded jollies as well. Yes, I, I, as sad as it sounds, and I don't want to make too much of this because there are people worse off than me. I, I was supposed to be in Rosario last week doing a piece on Bielsa, so that will have to be canned and we'll wait for a later date. Um, and I was also down to do Italy in the Euros during the summer as well. So two things that have kind of gone by the wayside, but uh, they'll come round again. If you want to get in touch, by the way, and feature on the show, head to the squareball.net forward slash WhatsApp, and that will take you through to the app and fill in our number leave us a voice memo, ask us a question, and we'll do our best to answer it for you here on the Phil Hay Show. And, and when it comes to the journalism angle, actually, we've had a question that's coming from Barney. There's a lot of questions about how football's going to survive and also football clubs with the COVID-19. But there's, no, there's not a lot of talk about how journalists are going to survive during this time when there's no football. So is, is how, how's the athletic surviving? Uh, also, any other journalists as well uh, trying to find stories and also... Just keep the punters reading your articles. Thank you. I mean, journalists not normally wants to receive a lot of sympathy, but presumably there has been something of a challenge. Well, from a personal point of view, I, I wouldn't expect any sympathy. I mean, we've we've continued much as we were before at The Athletic and we've been lucky in that sense. It is just the logistical challenge of finding things to write about when you're not actually able to go out and, and interview people and coming up with different ideas that aren't just nostalgia-based indefinitely. But... You know, on a serious note, there are a fair number of sports writers already who've been put on furlough um, and, and who won't be paid by the papers in this period and, and won't work for the papers in this period. People that I, I know well, people that I've worked with um, for a long time, people who are very, very good at, at what they do. And it, it was a factory. They, we were never going to be untouchable either. Um, it's pretty much extending to, to everybody. And I genuinely wish them them all the best. And I hope on the other side of this, everybody comes out in, in a good state. But it is making a difference to us. And, and as I say, in terms of what we're writing, it makes you think about something that you never contemplate before, which is what do you do when there isn't actually any football? And I know we go through the summer with no football and I know we have the off-season and then pre-season when nobody cares about the games. But you have transfer rumours during that period. You have um, a lot of coverage of a squad being built or squads being taken apart and it's the first time I've ever experienced a period of potentially three or four months where a a ball isn't going to be kicked and it has to be said that after a while it's not that you run out of things to to write about it's just that the agenda beyond the coronavirus becomes very slim and and very scarce. You have spoken to Matthias Click in the last couple of days haven't you Phil? How's he bearing up? Yeah, we had a chat with him yesterday over Zoom or, or some such other app. I'm, I'm not too okay with, with all of them. I mean, he's doing what every player is doing. They're running as much as they can. They're training at home with their bikes and their weights and, and the mats and, and kind of strengthening equipment. But he said himself, he said, I'm I'm pretty bored. You know, the, the days are, are quite mundane. The routine's pretty mundane. They're desperate to get back into it. And don't forget as well that, that this hasn't come at kind of August, September, October time. It's come right at the, the peak of the season and the point at which things were going to be decided, you know, notably for Leeds promotion and the and the championship title. So they're not making any secret of the fact that it is dull. Um, they are finding it a drag. And I think they're all resigned to the fact as well that, that this could go on for a, a while longer. But what I found really interesting with him was that he said, yes, you know, we're desperate to, to finish this season. We're desperate to play it out. And we don't want the season to be voided after 37 games. But he said as well, we don't want to get promoted after 37 games. We don't want the league to be ended at this point. And for us to go up with the table as it stands, because forever you're going to have people saying that, you're going to have that in your ear, 
that you might have gone up, but you didn't play the full 46-game season. It was shortened. It was kind of unofficial, so to speak. And he, he seemed very aware of that, the fact that he just did not want that to, to be the case. So he's crossing fingers without a doubt. And he said that, quite frankly, the players will accept whatever's decided in terms of you know a, a way of finishing the season off. They're happy to play games in a short period. They're happy to adapt to, to whatever needs to be done. But to say that they're as, as much in the dark as all of us would be an understatement. I mean, from a fan's perspective, Michael, do you think fans would soon forget about it if we were to be awarded promotion now and we found ourselves in the Premier League in six or 12 months' time? We wouldn't care, would we? I think it'd be a bit of an anticlimax after waiting so long for it. You, you dream of, in many ways, I don't really dream of being in the Premier League again. I dream of being promoted. Once we're there, it'll be, it'll be terrible, won't it? It'll be, we'll be having to sign mediocre players for 80 grand a week and it'll, it'll all feel a little bit like, why did we even want to get back here? Whereas the getting back is the joyful bit. So let's just have that whenever it comes. Um, if it happens in October, I'm happy to wait. Next question that we've received comes from Gary and is about the coaches, Marcelo Bielsa's coaching staff. At the moment with the coronavirus and everything, do we know of um, any of Bielsa's coaching staff managed to go back to our Argentina to be with our families or Spain or wherever their families are in Europe? Or are all the coaching staff still working at Thorpe Arch and, and doing things themselves? No, I don't believe they have. Um, I, I know that they're being worked as hard as they usually get worked, but but in different different ways and, and different styles. Bielsa is quite prone to giving them projects at times like this or projects when there's, there's kind of no football to, to focus on intently. And I may have mentioned this previously, but I was told that when they first came in, he, he gave them the challenge of setting up training drills to imagine how they would have scored and prevented every single goal that was scored in the 2018 World Cup. So I can imagine them going through all sorts of of bits and pieces like that. Not too sure why they're doing it, but absolutely certain that the work needs to be completed on time and and as planned. The the thing for all of them, and and Bielsa being Weatherby at the moment in his flat, going over videos and and keeping himself prepared, but because nobody's clear on when when there's going to be a resumption and and when the games are going to start again, they need to be ready to to jump back into Thorpe Arch at, at a moment's notice. And it's one of the reasons why they're trying to work the players as hard as they can physically in this period. I know there are other clubs who've given players time off. There are players who are doing a kind of scaled down training schedule. But I think the feeling it leads is that if this was to resume fairly quickly and to resume before the point at which constant intense training becomes ridiculous and, and has to be has to be eased off then they want to go back into full training um, in, in the best condition they can be in. And, and I think it's likely that there will have to be some sort of buffer period where they have two weeks, three weeks prior to fixtures starting where every squad can train in full and can train as, as they would train normally. And I think there's a, a concern at Leeds that to come back you know, a little below the curve, so to speak, would not do them any good. Uh, so to their mind, the schedule they've got going is as tough as it would be at Thorpe Arch, give or take, minus the sort of mother ball sessions and, and the other things that, that require a ball. But yeah, at, at the moment, everybody is still here and, and very much involved and, and pretty much just waiting for the green light. How long do you think it had taken then to get from the sort of condition of the summer, which I presume they're heading towards now, up to full match fitness and ready to play again? They're quite confident that as it stands and, and with what they're doing, that it would take probably a couple of weeks, two, three weeks to, to be back up to, to full speed, whether or not they'd be at the, the speed they were at by the time they got to the Huddersfield game. And, and five wins on the bounce, no goals conceded. You know, you can't state that too often really because it underlines the, the form they were in and, and the momentum they, they had behind them. It will be difficult to pick that up, but I think physically they'll benefit from the fact that they've had a very strict nutritional plan for two years now under Bale. So they've had a very strict 
the physical plan under him as well. And and all the players have lost weight. All the players are fitter and leaner than than they were before. And I think they believe that the programme they've put in place will see them right with this. And and I suspect it probably will. I, I would think that if there's one squad that will be in good shape when this is all done, it will, it will certainly be the squad that leads. It's just the, the caveat of saying that, that no team performs at a higher intensity either. So as much as they might come back at a higher level, they're going to have to hit a higher level when they start playing as well. I mean, talking about Bielsa before, is he living alone in Weatherby at the minute or is his wife and, and family across with him? No, he's there alone. His family come over to visit him from time to time. His wife has been here, but they don't live here. They they live back um, near Rosario in, in Argentina. Um, and, and you know, he, I, I don't think he, he's somebody who struggles with solitude particularly. And if you look at his managerial career, he has pretty much up sticks and moved to wherever he needed to go whenever a job was offered to him. You know, Bilbao and Marseille and Lille and, and now Leeds. He, he doesn't seem to be picky in terms of, you know, geographical location. Quite happy to be several thousand miles away from home. It's funny, really, because when he moved over, the club put him up in Rudding Park, posh hotel near, near Harrogate, and, you know, thought that that would be great for him. And, and he wasn't too happy there. He, he wasn't too content. He wanted to move elsewhere. And when they got round to talking about where he'd move next, he, he did say to them, I, I just want a small bed sit in Boston Spa or, you know, as close to the training ground as possible. It doesn't need anything in it. It doesn't need any great amenities. Um, I think the club would have been quite happy to have put him up in Bridgewater Place or somewhere relatively higher end or, or up market in Leeds. But it's not his style, it, it's not his way. And the, the priority seemed to be that he was somewhere within walking distance of the training ground and, and very much in the vicinity. So it sounds like Weatherby suits him much as it probably wouldn't suit a, a heck of a lot of, of us, the, the place where he's staying. Um, and by all accounts, he's very happy. You've painted quite a bleak picture there. Well, you remember the story of the, the tr- um, training ground at Chile? Um, when, when he was head coach of the Chilean national side and the fact that he stayed at the training ground and the room he had to go on reports and stories that were written about it at the time basically had a widescreen telly. You know, in, t- in terms of actual mod cons, that was pretty much it. They always had a bed um, and, you know, other bits and pieces that you, you cannot go without. But um, he's, he's not a guy... I, I don't know what his, his, his home is like in Rosario. I don't know what his, his house is like there, but he doesn't strike you as a guy who's big on swimming pools and verandas and um, champagne bars and, and everything else. I think he pretty much needs or wants what he needs to do his job. And that's pretty much the long and short of it. There was an interesting point made with Matt Click's interview yesterday where I think um, we do worry about what a lot of the players from overseas are going through at the moment, being separated from their families, whether they're in a, a big house uh, in Boston Spa or a, a flat above a, a shop. But Click seems to be making the point that it's it's not actually much different from from what they go through anyway, that they, they, they're used to communicating with their, their loved ones over um, Skype or FaceTime or whatever they, they use. And that it's just kind of carrying on very much in that vein. And, and so the actual, the lifestyle that footballers are, although they're being forced into it by the the current crisis going on around them, is not actually dissimilar from the lifestyle that they have to to get used to just to follow their careers anyway. There are very few footballers or managers who won't go where the, the game takes them. And it's one of those things that you have to accept when you get into the profession and when you do turn professional. And and these days, more than ever, you're liable to move abroad or to have opportunities abroad, and it's easier to take those those transfers when they come up. I mean, I've, I've been chatting on a little bit recently to Luciano Becchio and I was asking him about the time when his career finished up after he'd been at Belgrano and, and was coming to the end in Argentina. And he said, essentially, he called it a day, not because of his body particularly or because of his enthusiasm, but because of his kids. I think he'd gone through a, a divorce with his wife 
and was in a situation where he wanted to see more of them. He wanted to make sure they were okay. And the only way to do that was to to call time and, and to head back to Spain. And and that's quite rare. And again, that was coming at the end of his career. So probably, you know, easier to make that decision at that point. But it's unusual to find players or, or coaching staff, people with, with ambition who won't go with the what takes them. And, and Belsic is kind of the epitome of that. Or you take the Warnock approach and just take the job and stay in Cornwall as much as possible. Take the job in Cornwall, drive up for training on a Thursday, stay until uh, the game's finished and, and head back on the Monday. And you have to say it's worked pretty well for him. I mean, as Michael touched on there, that is a it's a pretty bleak vision of Bielsa's life, isn't it? You like to think that he's at least sat there with a box full of uh, tactical VHS tapes and a few cans from the offie. You'd like to think so. He loves a five guys burger, does Bielsa. He's he's big on that. But I don't think he's much of a drinker. I remember hearing the story that, that, that they, they always, obviously always go to the team hotel on a Friday night, whether they're playing at Ellen Road or, or playing away from home, and that he used to, to get a pint and tip half it into another glass for one of his coaches, have a quick sip on that, and, and then head off to bed. And he strikes me as a, a kind of red wine connoisseur, if, if anything, Bielsa. And I say that with no knowledge of whether he is, but he just has that, that look about him. But I don't think he... He's the sort who'd go out for four, eight cans of tenants, really. Much as I suggest that he did at times like this. And speaking of tenants, actually, here's Mike's question. In light of the whole coronavirus and the the shop smashing for all the, the beer and spirits, etc., for the pitch of the tenants' beer not being touched, how bad is tenants? Yeah, at least um, Corona had the the benefit or the the get out of thick people thinking it had something to do with with COVID nineteen. Tennis is vastly underrated lager, you know, but I think you have to be Scottish to say that. And it's it's kind of a good thing that there's plenty left on the shelves because I'll I'll quite happily happily have it if if nobody else wants it. But I'd suggest you get stuck in and and be also too. Tenants reminds me actually of that pre season trip to Glasgow. Hasselbank was still here. It was the summer of of nineteen ninety nine. And I drove from my student digs in Newcastle up to meet my dad and his mates in Glasgow, who'd done the full weekend up there. And I set off at 4.30 in the morning, got there at like breakfast time, walked into this smelly room full of Leeds fans, and they took me straight out to the pub for breakfast. You know, the, you know, the worker pubs that used to open like all kinds of hours for the shift workers working uh, with steel in the ships. Ah, yes. But we went there at 7.30 in the morning, and I remember now it was £1.50 for a pint of tenants and a bacon butty as well. There you go, see. Like Begbie says in train spotting chemicals. That's what I always think of when, when I drink tenants, and it and it and very nice it is too. We've teamed up with the good folks at beer52.com to give you the chance to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash fill and pay the postage of four ninety five. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener to the Phil Hay Show, you will get two extra beers in your box. Beer 52, they've done all the hard work for you, travelling the world, finding the best, most interesting beers from the very best craft breweries. And they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. The beauty of Beer 52 as well, you can leave any time, the power's totally in your hands. And your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, and you get a nice little beery snack thrown in your box too. Head to beer52.com forward slash fill to get your free beer. And don't forget, listeners to this show now get two extra free beers. Now, we were talking before about coming up with stories in the absence of football, and coincidence would have it, we've got the 20th anniversary of the deaths in Istanbul this week, and you've done an in-depth piece about that, Phil. Yeah, when I first joined The Athletic last July, they, they asked us to come up with a, a kind of initial list of ideas and stories and the, this, the longer reads that we might do and the bigger projects that we might focus on. And this is one that I included in, in my list because I knew that it was coming around to the 20th anniversary and I wanted to try and mark it properly 
if I could. The thing that struck me at the beginning was firstly how quickly those 20 years have gone. I was a student in Sheffield when it happened, so I, I wasn't covering Leeds at the time. I wasn't really in Leeds or, or around Leeds, but I do have, like I think everybody will have, really clear memories of, of the news reports and the, the, the constant coverage of it for, for several weeks afterwards. I, I suspected at the outset that it would be quite complicated to do because I wanted to try and speak to as many people as I could who were involved in it. So I wanted to try and speak to the, the family of, of Kevin Spate. I wanted to try and speak to the family of, of Christopher Loftus. I wanted to speak to Peter Ridsdale, who was obviously the chairman that, that guided Leeds through the tragedy. I want to speak to a former player, somebody like Eddie Gray, who, who was a coach with them and, and was caught in that really famous and an awful photo of, of the players and the staff coming up out of the tunnel at the Ali Samien with the riot shields around them. Um, it was an old colleague of mine, Mark Bickerdike, who worked on the Yorkshire Evening Post, who was over covering that game for the newspaper and got some some really striking pics of, of them emerging with the, the riot shields all around. And also, um, I, I went looking for a guy called Kevin Fallows, who was the head of security for Leeds over in Istanbul, um, and, and went with the players and the staff to, to try and coordinate what, what was going on there. And the thing you, you're never quite sure about is how many people will want to speak about this, how many people will, will want to dig it up so many years later. And I, I was very honest with them all and said, look, if, if you don't want to speak and you don't want to do this, and I totally understand and, and there's no pressure on you to do it, and you know I, I, I can see it from your perspective if you'd rather not. But I actually found that that everybody I did get in touch with wanted to do it and wanted to reflect. I think more than anything, because they don't want it to to be forgotten. And and I do get the sense, and I think you three will be better placed to talk about this than me, but I do get the sense that this is always going to be part of the fabric of, of Leeds United now. I don't think the memories of what happened and, and the, the sort of grainy images you, you remember from it are, are ever going to go away. And it's remembered religiously every season, almost without fail. It, it would have been remembered without a doubt this weekend in, in the way that, that it always is. And and it's a real shame with it being 20 years on that that, that won't be the case. I know that the, the families had arranged a, a get-together and and a do for Sunday, which is, is the anniversary of, of Kevin and, and Christopher's death. Um, they plan to go, as they always do, to the, the plaque at Ellen Road and to lay wreaths there. I suspect they will, but they'll have to do it separately because of all the, the social distancing restrictions. So so that really is un- unfortunate. But what I've always liked and, and what I think is, is always really important is that you feel like this will be part of the calendar at Leeds for you know, for for the foreseeable future and and forever, really, and and given how awful that story was, and, and given what happened, that's absolutely as it should be. And from a fan's perspective, what do you remember of it, Michael? I mean, I was only fifteen at the time, so I mean, for me, it was I was so I just was a little bit too young to properly remember things like Hillsborough and the Bradford Fire. So this for this for me was growing up in an era of the Premier League when there wasn't even any major crowd violence. This was kind of my first taste of any of any football tragedy at all so it was it was very difficult and obviously with it being my club it felt it felt very close to home and it it was a just a dreadful atmosphere around the place I remember it was it was a mixture between sort of sadness and poison where it seemed to be the the horrible mixture that was going on yeah it came it felt like a bit of a a run of of things that were were happening as as Leeds sort of accelerated at the the end of the of the century we were being called the the Millennium Club in all their their own publicity. I think I still got the Millennium Annual somewhere um, that has those players like Smith and Kewell and McPhail on the front. But I was uh, I was living at home with my parents, and I remember distinctly being woken up three times in the morning by my mum giving me news. First one 
was about the plane crash that we discussed with with Bryn Law. That um, I think the anniversary of that was was this week as well, where the the players coming back from a a game in the late nineties had had a very near miss at Stansted Airport, and then after that was at the start of two thousand that Byron Woodgate had been arrested. So that was obviously a a great piece of news to to wake up to when we were top of the league in January. And then just a couple of months later was was this, the day before the game, the news got back to England that there'd been two Leeds fans murdered on, on the eve of a game. And uh, after a, a period of what had been quite quiet times for Leeds, I guess from, from Bournemouth onwards, nothing apart from winning the title really happened for good or ill. We were quite steady away after winning the legal, you know, just top end of the Premier League most seasons and, and everything seemed all right. There was this sense of things running a little bit out of control at the time. And then, yeah, the uh, being in a, a situation that um, I think it's to, to Peter Ridsdale's credit that he managed to handle this situation much, much better than unfortunately he handled other situations that, that seem to come after this. This seems to be the, the one where maybe because it just relied on human responses and really a, a necessity to just stick to doing the right thing all the way through it. It was he was able to to do those things and and guide the club through unprecedented and really angry times. There was the sort of the backlash against um Turkish businesses and, and fans that was threatened and the, the 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 real fear of violence around the the second leg that was going to be played at Elland Road. All of that just needed to be kept under the surface as, as as much as possible and quietened as much as possible to make sure that that we came out of this kind of with um, with what needed to happen, which was the focus on supporting the families and trying to find their, which is the one thing that never happened really, was trying to punish the people who had done it and making sure that the repercussions didn't spin out of control from there. I mean, that second leg, it really was. It was one of the, the most surreal, poisonous atmospheres I can ever remember at Ellen Road. Strangely enough, there are parallels with now that football had taken on a completely different perspective. It, it didn't really matter. But one of the characters who was central to all this was Peter Ridsdale, and he's obviously remembered for the financial collapse that happened a few years down the line. But I think it's it's important not to completely demonise him and to separate maybe the human from the football chairman a bit. I think you've you've got to separate the the footballing demise of Leeds United that that he is justifiably criticised for from an incident which both of the families say that they're forever grateful for the way he acted and and the support they they got from the club and from Ridsdale in particular. I mean, when when I went to interview George Spate, who's the the son of Kevin. George was seven at the time when, when his father was killed and, and doesn't have particularly clear memories of him, certainly doesn't have any memories of him leaving for Istanbul or, or of any any kind of awareness of the fact that that game was taking place. But he said that when you know when he told his mum that, that Ridsdale was going to be interviewed for this piece, her, her eyes had lit up and she'd said, I'd really like to get back in touch with him because we, we owe him a lot for the, the support he gave us through that period. And the same goes for the, the Loftuses as well. And th- the story with Ridsdale was that he was on the night when the this the stabbings happened. He was on a floating restaurant in the Bosphorus close to the, the team hotel because the um, convention was that club officials would dine together with UEFA delegates on the night before in, in part because going back that 
that far. They they didn't have um, a lot of clubs, particularly you know, further afield in Europe, didn't have great corporate facilities, didn't have anywhere to to host visiting directors and, and officials at the stadiums. So he was he was on this boat when he had a word in his ear from David Spencer, who was the the head of operations at Leeds, to say that there'd been some serious trouble in in the centre of Istanbul, and, and that from what he was being told, two Leeds fans had, had been badly injured. The advice was for everybody to return to the um, Kempinski, which was the hotel that Leeds were staying in. But Ridsdale and Spencer went directly to the hospital, Taxim Hospital, where where the two two lads were, were being treated to try and find out what was going on and and to see if if they could help. And there were multiple complications because they had they already had hundreds of fans who who were in Istanbul for the game the following evening. They had some who were either in the process of travelling or about to travel the next morning and a flight from Leeds Bradford Airport that was due to go in the morning was was cancelled pretty quickly. And when they got down to the the hospital, in his words, it, it was just absolute chaos and there were other Leeds fans there who were injured. There were Leeds fans there who were relatives or friends of um, Spate and Loftus and were trying to find out what, what was going on. And I think it, it is easy to to underestimate. And, and in fairness, if nobody knows the details, they, they probably would. But to underestimate exactly what it was that, that Ridsdale went through, he, he said that when he got to the hospital, amid the confusion, he was mistaken by the staff for, as, um, for being a relative of, of Christopher Loftus. So they, by accident, took him down to the mortuary to identify the body. Um, and he was there when when the cabinet that that Chris Loftus was in was pulled out. Chris's brother Darren, um, who was one of four brothers who'd gone across to Turkey for the game, was coming down the stairs behind him. And as as Ridsdale tells it, started shouting out and shouting for for Chris to wake up, and and was kind of breaking down in in exactly the way that that you would expect. And in the meantime, Kevin Spate was in an operating theatre, had a, a really serious stomach wound, and, and was in desperate need of a, a blood transfusion. And the protocol over there, and and Ridsdale didn't imply any criticism here he said you, you have to accept that the, the hospitals in Turkey operate in the way that, that they operate and this was just how it was but they were told that there would be no blood available until somebody paid for it it had to be um, sourced externally and in order for somebody to go and get it and, and to have the blood released it needed to be paid for so there were supporters who offered cash but in the end David Spencer put the money on his own personal credit card to make sure that, that the blood came and in the end, end, it was too late for Kevin Spate. They, they weren't able to, to save him and he died in, in the early hours of the morning. But I think a very, very harrowing experience for Ridsdale and, and one that, that I don't think he'll ever get over and, and will will ever forget. And going back to you know what, what you said right at the start, by all means, aim criticism at Ridsdale for what happened you know later on with Leeds and what happened financially and, and with the, the, the team's demise from a, from a great position but I think in terms of Istanbul the people who are closest to it all agree that, that the way he handled it was exemplary and Peter Ridsdale when you spoke to him Philly he expressed real disappointment at the conduct of Galatasaray with some strong comments yeah very he, he said that he doesn't think even to this day they think that the amount of coverage was justified. They don't think that criticism of Galatasaray was was justified. He said that he felt uncomfortable welcoming them them back over for the second leg because he didn't feel that they'd responded to it in the way that they should have done, and he didn't feel that they'd responded to it in the way that that Leeds would have done had the the situation been reversed. I mean, the, the, mentioning the, the the second leg, Dan spoke about it how poisonous it was and and venomous, and and everybody agrees that there was zero focus on on football. Um, I had a chat with Ian Hart who said that you know in the dressing room beforehand, the the players sort of tried to say 
you know, let's get stuck into them. Let's try and turn this this tie on its head. But really, at the back of your head, you were thinking, who who cares? You know, who who really cares how this goes? What what does the game matter? And Ridsdale's request was that there were no away fans at the game. He didn't want any Galatasaray fans to travel because he felt that he'd never been involved in a game with the potential for more danger than that. And and it's hard to to disagree with that. And in the end, Galatasaray were were limited to 80 tickets, which really just covered their directors and, and other staff who, who were coming for the game. But he said Galatasaray were very unhappy about that. They he, they thought, despite everything, they thought that, that Leeds were trying to gain a bit of a sporting advantage. They thought that Leeds were being unfair by doing that. And they felt in all that everything that was going on in Leeds was a huge overreaction, which is a, a bizarre thing to hear and, and a bizarre way to think of it. And I don't think there was any love lost there at all. And I don't think, you know, 20 years on, Bridsdale was ever particularly forgiven them for that. I think if I remember correctly, UEFA's attitude towards the incident that was seized upon as helpful by Galatasaray to to guide their attitude towards it was that because it had happened away from the stadium and it had happened on a day that wasn't the match day, it was not something that constituted a football incident. Therefore, the game in Istanbul could go ahead as normal and there wasn't even, if you remember, there was there was no minute silence or or anything in the, the stadium to acknowledge that this had happened. That's why the Leeds fans took it upon themselves to turn their backs on the, the first minute of the game and show exactly what they thought of it. But that really set the tone for the, uh, I think, the brick wall that you could tell seeing Peter Ridsdale in the press conferences he was doing at the time, not only the, the impact it had on him personally, having, as he described, been in, in the hospital that night and involved in identifying the the body but but then having this brick wall that he was essentially beating his head off trying to deal with what he was getting back from UEFA and Galatasaray and I think that's it's one of the reasons why a lot of the ill feeling with with Galatasaray and by extension our old friend Harry Kuehl has has endured because they really just never took this seriously. That was the problem. I, nobody, I don't think anybody was trying to pin it to Galatasaray in the sense of saying you are to blame for the, the fact that the two men were killed. Although there's no doubt at all that, that the atmosphere at the Ali Sami Yen kind of encouraged a, a lot of volatility. And, and what I found most revealing was the, the number of people, Kevin Fallows, the head of security, and Eddie Gray, and, and, and Ridsdale kind of touched on this as well, saying that they felt that the way that the police dealt with them as players and staff at the stadium was designed to intimidate them. And it felt like an extension of the atmosphere at, at the, the Ali Sami Inn. You know, Eddie said, said to me, I can't say this for sure, but it felt as if when we went up the steps and we had the riot police, you know, guarding the, the entrance and they needed to do that because they were getting pelted with objects. But he said, it felt to me as if that was all kind of staged and coordinated, as if that was just part of the welcome for visiting teams and it was the fact that there was no acknowledgement of what had gone on. So nothing changed with the, the first leg itself. Like Dan says, there was no minute silence, um, nothing of, of that sort. And again, the the kind of fight to to have away fans come into a game that, that had the potential for so much trouble that it made no sense. And I think in the end, UEFA took the best part of seven or eight days to, to make the decision about the ticketing for the second leg. And in, in fairness to them, it wasn't something that they could have snapped their fingers over and and you know, made a decision with instantly. But I think there was just a general feeling of dragging of feet and a general feeling of, is this really our fault? And is this really our, our problem? Even though it got to the stage where you really felt like football just need to kind of look itself in, in the mirror and accept that it was in an, an awful situation and, and that in a lot of respects, the right thing had to be done. Uh, so now 20 years on, 
20 years down the line, have the two families been able to rationalise what happened or come to terms with it? There's a definite difference between them. I think it helps with the space, particularly the the children, George and Holly, that uh, Holly was two at the time um, when Kevin was killed. So she has no memories of him at all, which I think has actually been hard for her because whereas with George, he's got the, you know, the odd memory that stands out of his dad. She she doesn't have that and, and it has been tricky. But George is an electrician these days. He's in his mid-20s. He, he seems happy with life and I think has, has been able to, to be quite philosophical about it. But Andy Loftus and, and his brothers, Phil and Darren, they were both over in, in Istanbul with Chris when he was killed. And, and I think I've found it extremely difficult to come to terms with that. I don't think they have come to terms with it. People might remember that, that Andy went to prison in, in 2013 for a, a football violence-related offence, and, and we spoke about that. And he said that after Chris's death, he was just permanently angry, he was permanently drinking, he was causing trouble, he was getting into fights. It was it was the classic symptoms of, of trauma, lean to incidents like that. But it was also, I think he said himself, it, it was a, a good thing for him because it did just help him to wake up a bit. And, and he got heavily involved with Candlelight as the, the local cancer charity and raised a, a lot of money for them. But in a lot of ways, he, he still blames himself and, and he wasn't able to to really um, articulate why he blames himself. Because at, at the time when Chris was stabbed in, in Istanbul, Andy and Phil had gone back to their hotel because Phil was feeling ill um, and, and was wanting to go up to bed. And, and Andy was just sat in the bar having a drink. And in a lot of respects... Yes, he wasn't with his brother, but you would say that having been out of the way and, and divorced from what was actually happening in the streets, he, he would be one of the last people to blame. But it's very easy to say that, and, and he clearly feels differently. And I think to speak to him and, and to look at him, you can tell that he's carrying this every day and it is never, ever going to go away. We've been turning over part three of the Phil Hay Show to you and letting you pick what we talk about. So your choices this week via Phil's Twitter account were... Number one, Mad Friday 2014. Number two, the Bristol Rovers promotion game in 2010. Or number three, Grayson out, Warnock in, ugh, in 2012. So which one was it that won? The winner was Mad Friday, which doesn't surprise me at all. I'm a bit surprised, actually, that the chaos of uh, Mad Friday beat the Joe Bristol Rovers. It was closer on, actually. It wasn't um, It wasn't winning by a streak. Um, I would say winning by a head at, at the finishing line. I think a lot of people know the story of Bristol Rovers and a lot of people have, a lot of journalists like me, have been over it a few times, written about it plenty. Um, you've heard Beckford speak about it and, and others. The thing about Mad Friday is that the detail of it is almost incredible to the point of being unbelievable. Um, and this, in actual fact, is a subject that we could probably don't um, devote an entire show to. Um, not that we should, but um, this, yeah, th- there is enough in this to chat on about for a full hour without a problem. So Mad Friday, if you don't remember it, it saw the, the transition from GFH to Chilino as that takeover was going on. And it was out of one particular frying pan and into a different fire in one sense. So remind us a bit of what happened. Well, I'll set the scene. GFH are selling the club, which GFH were pretty much doing from the point where they, they bought it. It was always their intention to buy and sell either a, a major share or, or the entire club at a profit. And what they didn't anticipate and, and what kind of showed the, the naivety was that they obviously had it in their heads that that wasn't going to be difficult and that there would be people queuing around the block to take the, the club off their hands, even though the club in their period in charge made next to, to zero progress and and you know was was pretty much in a worse state when they took it over when they sold it than than it was when they took it over and people remember that in the towards the back end of 2013 this group emerged called um the sport capital consortium which was david haig who was obviously one of gfh's men along with andrew flowers who was the head of enterprise insurance and um, leads longtime short sponsor 
And, and, and others in the background, we were never quite clear on who. I, I sometimes wondered whether Haig himself was ever clear on who exactly was in that group. But essentially, it was supposed to go ahead and, and ownership of the club was supposed to pass from GFH to, to Sport Capital. And in January 2014, it, it pretty much fell apart. The deal ran aground. It wasn't able to be resurrected. And from nowhere, Massimo Cellino appeared at a game against Leicester City at Ellen Road. He was pictured um, chatting on to, to one of GFH. And, and over the next sort of week to 10 days, it became clear that not only was he interested in, in buying the club, but he'd pretty much done a deal already um, to take on a, a majority share, which took us to the point at the end of January where things started to get serious, things started to, to develop. And we reached the stage where the club was about to become Chilinos. You know, it is easy to forget just how chaotic it was. And that chaos ran really deep, didn't it? I mean, from GFH meddling to Chilino jumping the gun with his appointments and the sackings and everything. Well, I'll give you I'll give you an idea. I, I always kept hold of this because I had a feeling that there would be occasions further down the line when, when I would need it. But at the time, somebody um, passed me a copy of an email which was sent to McDermott from Hisham Al Reyes. It was like a directive from the Legion United board. And Al Reyes, again, was a it was senior figure at GFH and, and a director at Leeds. And it's long, so I won't read the, the entire thing, but it came on the back of that 6-0 hammering to Sheffield Wednesday at Hillsborough when it was kind of said that GFH wanted McDermott sacked at, at half-time. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure they were actually going to do it there and then, but I think they were very close to, to taking the decision that, that he would go. So what they said to him in this um, letter the following week was that starting from the game against Leicester, which was the point at which um, Chilino turned up and was first seen in Leeds, he was required by no later than the Tuesday before the game to submit a full report explaining the poor performance of the team in the last seven games with detailed analysis um, explaining technical shortfalls and how they would be prevented. For every game onwards, you'll be required to submit a report on strategy to be undertaken, a list of players and squad formation, a minimum of 24 hours prior to the game for the group CEO and the chairman to approve. In other words, we want to see your team and we want to make sure we're happy with it before the, the game is played. And then afterwards, and, and this isn't as unreasonable as the other request, but you're to submit a report on each game with, with technical analysis again and, and to let us know what's going on. So... McDermott is very much in a corner, but, but the bigger picture in the background was the fact that GFH had pretty much pulled up the drawbridge in terms of finance. They were getting tired of funding the wage bill and funding the club. They wanted somebody to come in and, and, and buy it and, and take it over. And you'll remember that Mad Friday itself was January the 31st in, in 2014. But you'll remember earlier that week, Leeds played Ipswich at Ellen Road and there'd been an attempt by Cellino to get Gianluca Festa onto the bench alongside McDermott to watch the game. Essentially because in, in Cellino's mind, he was going to sack McDermott and he saw Festa as a, as a perfect replacement for him, Festa being the, the ex-Middlesbrough player. Now, McDermott refused that request, but he could see that the writing was on the wall and he knew what was in the water and he knew that at some point, if Cellino did buy the club, he was going to be in a huge amount of trouble. And we'd reached the point on the Friday in the morning when somebody from the club phoned me and said, look, this deal is going to get done today. This is going to get agreed. The club is going to be Chilinos. They're going to sell a 75% stake to him. And at that point, all bets are off really and we have we have no idea what's happening. And the odd thing about that that Friday was that Leeds were playing Huddersfield the following day and McDermott essentially waited as late as possible to do his press conference, his pre-match press conference, and he wanted to do it because he didn't want to give anybody a reason to sack him, even the sort of spurious reason that you didn't do your press conference and you should have done, you're out. So we had this ridiculous scenario where we went and went to his 
uh, went to Thorpe Arch, sat through his, his media briefing round about one o'clock, knowing fine well that at some point over the next 24, 48 hours, it was very possible that he was going to go and, and that it was absolutely guaranteed that at some stage in the next three to four months, he would be gone as manager. And it, it's one of the saddest, most depressing press conferences I've ever been to, sitting there literally talking to a dead man walking, which he will say himself he, he absolutely was. Moscow, you even kept a diary of these events, didn't you, on the night in question in your previous job? I was uh, ready to go home from when I was working at uh, the City Talking, which when it was a, a newspaper and a, a website. And um, it, yeah, it basically, it, it all started kicking off as, as everybody was leaving. And uh, yeah, my role basically came to kind of synthesise everything that Phil and Adam Pope, who was the, I think they were the two of the coalface trying to chip away and, and find out what was going on and, and try to keep some a kind of track of what was being said. So it was very much in vogue at the time to put, it was before you had proper threads on Twitter. So you would take tweets and you put them into a, a blog. There were no moments then either. You do a, you might do a story file or something like that, but I was doing that for a, for our website to, to sort of update it. And, and yeah, I, I sort of thought, well, there might be a, a quick article in this. I'll, I'll put it together and then nip out. And um, yeah, it was after midnight, I think, when I, I finally left that office. And I've always been interested because I, you know, I was doing it at, at one remove. But Phil, were you actually, were you talking to anybody at the club at that time? Was there anybody answering answering the phone or anybody you could speak to? Because I'd, I'd really love, love to know kind of how their voices sounded. Absolutely. Although I, I wouldn't name any names, obviously, but um, there was a huge amount of resistance to Cellino's takeover because his reputation in Italy was well known. And I think a lot of the staff there felt that they would be extremely vulnerable if he was to, to take the club over, perhaps because of financial cuts, but more than anything else, because they knew of his reputation for for sacking people. The crucial moment on that Friday was at around about kind of 5pm when Salah Nuruddin, who again was um, one of GFH's associates and, and later became chairman of the club, or, or I think was chairman at the club at, at that stage, he texted Cellino to say, congratulations on your purchase of Leeds United, words to, to that effect. And Cellino basically took that as his signal to start bloodletting. Um, and within an hour, a lawyer called Chris Farnell, who was working um, for Chilino and was was set to become a board member at Leeds and was kind of doing a lot of the, the background work for him, phoned McDermott to say, you're out of a job. You know, you, you're being sacked. Um, Chilino wants to replace you. As of now, you, you're no longer manager of, of Leeds United. And this was, you know, less than 24 hours before the, the Huddersfield game. The plan was to install Jean-Luca Festa, uh, to have him on the bench as, as manager. And they called Neil Redfern down, who was, was working in the academy, but they, they called him down and, and to Ellen Road and said to him, you're going to assist Festa tomorrow. And you know, Redfern, in the position he was in, kind of said, well, I don't have a lot of choice. So he agreed to do it. And what developed from there was obviously the, the most crazy and, and bonkers Friday evening in which so much went on and there was so much infighting and so many problems that by the time they got to the next day, they couldn't actually leave Fest in charge of the team. It wasn't viable. It, it wasn't really safe to do so because the, the mood was going to be so sour at Ellen Road. And in the end, they phoned McDermott's assistant, Nigel Gibbs, on the morning of the game and said, listen, will you take the game, please? This was GFH. Will you take the game with Redfern assisting you? Because there's no way you know McDermott could come back to the stadium today. 
and there's no way he can come down at this point and, and take the game himself. It, it would look even more ridiculous than, than everything else that was going on. So Festa spent the game in the East Stand, up a tier, I believe, criticising Leeds to death during the first half when they were struggling against Huddersfield, sitting saying nothing, and from what supporters have told me, taking dogs abuse in the second half when, when Leeds ran out 5-1 winners. So yeah, it was pretty much from 5pm onwards when, when that text was sent that, that things started to get out of hand. Just on Gianluca Festa, what was what was he brought to the club to do exactly? Because Cellino denied that he was ever brought in to be manager. He said he was just he never managed before and he was just someone he knew. But the fact he wanted him on the bench and so close to the team, everyone everyone was expecting him at some point to take over. Yeah, I'm just wondering what what you understood from it. Well, my impression at the time was that he was going to replace McDermott. If if not in the long term, then certainly in in the interim. The part of the issue with um, with Chilino was you, you never could tell and you could never be sure if what you were being told was actually what was going to happen in the same way as when Benito Carboni turned up randomly at Birmingham in a club tie and a, and a club suit we were all left asking what's going on here and, and eventually when I got round to speaking to Chilino, he said he's coming in to run the academy which lasted for all of I can't remember now, but two or three months tops. Initially, Carboni had a flat and he had a car, but then Cellino withdrew all of that and Carboni went back to Italy and, and that was the, the end of that experiment. So my, my understanding was that, that Festa was to take over, certainly in, in that period. And, and that was the plan for the Huddersfield game. But because of how things went on the Friday night, it, it wasn't possible. I mean, it's, it's only when you start going back over it and you think about in detail what really happened that it you realise how, how ridiculous it all became. You'll, you'll remember Enterprise Insurance threatening to withdraw first-team sponsorship, and you'll remember Flamingoland threatening to withdraw academy sponsorship, which was kind of almost unheard of for, for it to happen, you know, in, in the blink of, of an eye like that. You had the issue of Cellino trying to sign players um, and bring them in from Italy. One in particular, Andrea Tabanelli, who he thought he'd signed, but ultimately the deal didn't go through because... At the point where this was all happening, David Haig was in an aeroplane um, flying on holiday to Switzerland or Austria or somewhere in, in Central Europe. And he was one of the club's signatories that the EFL needed in order to officially sign off any transfer. And because he couldn't sign the document, the Tabanelli transfer was never processed and, and was never made official. So Tabanelli had the best part of a week sat in a hotel in Leeds, waiting for the EFL to make a decision on this, waiting for the EFL to come back to him. And, and given that there was all the furore around Chilino's takeover and given that the EFL were expressing doubt about whether they were even going to approve it um, in the first place, it was inevitable that that deal wasn't wasn't going to go through. And and he was one of kind of several victims um, of a of a truly, truly bizarre night, which to be quite honest, felt like it was never going to end. Tabanelli's Instagram account was probably the highlight of being sat in that office after dark until the small hours is a as a piece of sunshine breaking through the clouds, the fact that that deal didn't get over the line is probably the one true tragedy of the the entire thing. Never mind Brian McDermott, he's fine, but we lost Tabanelli. I still don't really know much about Tabanelli, and I've I've often thought I might get in touch with him just to ask what went on, how was it, and and what was the the real story. And I mean, he he was by no means the only one. There was a, a kind of de facto chief exec, not again not officially in position, but acting chief exec by the name of Paul Hunt, who was sacked on the Friday night, was reinstated on the Saturday morning, but then before the game at Huddersfield was told to go home again and, and to the best of my knowledge has never been seen at Ellen Road um again. Which is not to say that anything untoward happened to him, but um that you know that was that was him him completely done. You had Ross McCormack who had interest from Cardiff and was on um Sky Sports News at least twice uh, and who was saying to Leeds, look, 
if if this is going to be the shambles that it, it's developing into, I'd like you to sell me because it was transfer deadline day and there was still the the possibility to to let players go. And and he kind of said, I don't want to stay if it's going to be like this. You know, if there are better offers out there, then then let me take them. But you know, Chilino wasn't having that. Chilino sat tight and said, No, absolutely, you know, absolutely not. Go away, leave me alone. And which McCormack did. And then you, you had the, the tweets, great tweets from um, Stanley Cars that were, were saying, can people please let a taxi driver get to the door to pick up Chilino because it's starting to run out of petrol, essentially because there were supporters down there who were kind of outside and making their, their feelings felt. But I don't think anything topped this off more than GFH announcing midway through the second half of the Huddersfield game that McDermott had been reinstated and, and announcing it in a way which almost expressed surprise that there was any doubt about his position um, and expressed surprise that people were kind of questioning whether or not McDermott was still the manager. And I mean, there was a a massive shift into reverse gear from David Haig, from GFH, even from Chilino on that Saturday morning when it became apparent that this isn't really how you do things and and the locals in Leeds are not going to be tolerant of of this going on. It was very short-term resistance because within about three or four days, the, the deal um, with Chilino was was put down in writing um, and was signed off by um, by him and, and by GFH. And even that, when you go back through the share purchase agreement and you look at what Chilino agreed to, what he, the, the loans that he agreed to service and the way in which he allowed it to be weighted entirely in GFH's favour, it's absolutely staggering. Is it right as well, Phil, that Chilino didn't do due diligence on the accounts and just went for it? Absolutely. He once said to me, in fact, he said a few times, if I ever did due diligence, I would never buy a club because there are too many things that are problematic. There are too many things to worry about. And it's better from my point of view that I just do the deal, get the club and and sort it out. But GFH were were claiming to be owed loans in excess of £20 million, which, which he was agreeing to to pay back on top of the price for the club itself, which, as I recall, was an initial £1 million followed by two payments of £4 million, so I think £9 million in total. Um, so that was that was the payment, but then he had these huge liabilities on top that he was going to have to deal with, and people will remember that that became a, a very serious bone of contention. He went to Bahrain several times to try and argue the toss about those and to try and knock them down, but... They were still there, those loans, when Radrazani bought the club in 2017. I was told back then that, that Radrazani, when he first came in, had paid a large chunk of them off. Um, and GFH had a debenture, which obviously covered Delland Road and, and other aspects of the club's businesses, and were essentially looked after in that contract and in that share purchase agreement in a way that their conduct and their management of the club in no way deserved. I mean, prior to Chilino buying the club, the players in McDermott had gone without wages because essentially nobody could agree who was going to pay them. GFH were going out the door, so they didn't want to. Chilino was coming in the door, but at that point, he, he was still waiting for his um, his his takeover to be ratified by the EFL. And, and if they blocked it and prevented him from from buying the club, he didn't want to have responsibility for the, the staff salaries either. And what I think was worst about that point was that on the day when the salaries didn't drop and on the day when, when the players and McDermott weren't paid, nobody even bothered to go to Thorpe Arch to speak to them and, and tell them. Um, they were they were kind of left in the dark. And as much as McDermott tried to play it with a straight bat and say, you know, I just do the football, We I just expect to get paid every month. You know, I don't think about my wage, I don't think about my salary. We did all say to him, you can't have had a period in your life before where you knew it was likely that payment wasn't going to come 
and nobody from the club has even had the decency to speak to you about it. And I, I, I know that the results under McDermott were appalling towards the end, and you know it, it reached the point of no return. But he, he, he has my greatest sympathy for what he had to put up with in those two or three months. It had reached that point though, where you just needed GFH out of the door. I think you almost had to be pragmatic about Chilino even. I mean, I, I remember writing a scathing column about GFH, which Elmi and our long phone call from from Hague later that evening, saying. You know they all need to go. They, they, their conduct has been so poor and and so unacceptable that they they cannot stick around the club and they've got no support here at all. They they need to leave and they need to resign from the positions. But I did say in the piece, all we can do now is kind of judge Chilino on his merit and judge him on what he what he does. And and he does come with a blank slate in the sense that he's a new, he's a new owner. A lot of us knew about his record in Italy and knew about the problems he'd had in in various situations over there but you did think you know judge him as it goes and and as it went it was not great and as it went there, there were a lot of problems and there were a lot of the issues that you could have seen a mile off when when he did buy in but you're right you had to just be a bit philosophical about it and say well at least GFH are gone and at least it, it is a, a bit of a new broom and, and the one thing I would say in Chilino's defence is that the finances when he sold and, and when Randrazani came in were in a considerably better state than they were when GFH um, sold the club to him. Him. GFH were, were just building up debt. GFH were, were not interested in the football side of things at all and really had no idea what they were doing. And for all Chilino's idiosyncrasies, he, he he did know football to a degree and, and he was able to make more of a go of the club than than they were. But that's not to excuse a lot of the things that went on on his, on his way to getting to the point of selling to Radrazani. And, and there's a lot when you look back that does not reflect well on him at all. Thank you, Phil. Great as always. We'll do more of this next week. For more great Leeds content, subscribe to The Athletic and catch up with all the articles that Phil's been writing. Ad-free podcasts there as well as a subscriber by listening through The Athletic app. You can get that 40% discount, as I mentioned at the top of the show, on a subscription by using the code LEEDSPOD. So go to theathletic.com forward slash LEEDSPOD. Thanks for listening. We'll catch up with you next week. Hold up. 